Hello everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 11 and we will be covering this chapter in two parts over separate podcasts. This is part one. You will find the audio version of the full chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindle.com. Today, my panel members are Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and Sue Flanagan, doctor, businesswoman and grandmother. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author and podcaster by night, computer programmer and risk advisor by day. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks Pete and Sue for joining me. So Chapter 11, uh, we've had a little bit of a a chat beforehand, obviously, and, and what we think chapter 11 is all about is Spensky giving us some oh well Spensky getting himself some street cred he's moving from he's he's put mathematics into all his discussions up to this point and and it's almost as if he still wants to be part of the mathematical world and not lose his credibility and now he's going to move into mysticism metaphysics the occult and so he's tried to glue the two together. And this chapter is his valiant attempt at dragging poor Professor Umov kicking and screaming with him and, uh, <laughs> and also um, a, a few others besides to say, look, these people are, are, are with me. Pete, you, you, you've, I just, you've got Well, I, I, I was just going to say because very early in the chapter, I mean, it's just a couple of pages in, having described Professor Umoff at the 1916 Mendeleevskian conference, which must have been a laugh a minute, that one. But it's, <laughs> he, he just drops in mention of um, the Kabbalah and alchemy in this incredible little paragraph, that he, which he then moves quickly on from. But it's a, it's a, I mean, from a hypnotic point of view, which I don't believe he was, um, it was a marvelous way of planting a seed because then, and then moving on because it leaves people thinking, what the heck is he on about? I need to, what, what's that? Let me, let me have a look at that. Uh, it was, it was incredible, but he, he literally has tagged that on to everything he's been describing from Professor Umoff and like, Umoff must be sitting there. What? What? <laughs> what are you doing, man? <laughs> Hang on a second. That's not me. <laughs> and, yeah, and I will point honestly. out too, there's this, this is, when I'm reading the book, it's like, hang on, is he still quoting Umoff or is this now a Spensky talking? He doesn't sort of put a line under it and go, now we've finished talking about Umoff, I'm going to give you my points of view. He just sort of rolls into it. No, I thought that was quite amusing. <laughs> so I think, I think, you know, you know, hats off to a Spensky here. He's, he's, uh, he's yeah. executed his plan. Um, he has. So, <laughs> so let's, well, that's, that's, uh, maybe, you know, we'll get to that in about five or ten minutes. Let's let's give him yeah, his go views for and have a quick look at what he's talked about with Umoff because he does give this couple of pages of quoting to, to Professor Umoff and having been the one who read the chapter out for the, the chapter reading, I tell you what, it was hard going. It was hard going reading this tiny print that went on for pages and pages. But, but you know, don't worry about me. So this chapter... He starts out and he says, look, so he's, he talks about the fact that, we, that if science is supposed to, you know, address these great unknowns, these enigmas of the world, why are not they addressing other dimensions? Why are they focusing on everything they do into the third dimension? 
And then he comes back and he says, except we have one shining, shining star, Professor Umoff, who has cracked, cracked this open and started to bring science into this, into this world. And he talks about Professor Umoff, as we just mentioned, uh, being the opening speech at the Mendelevsky Convention, which, as as we discussed um, earlier, I think would have been yes a, a, a riotous event, if nothing else, <laughs> full of full of uh, scientists who are all there, very uh, what's the word for it? Um, Stained. Traditional. Stayed, Stayed as well, yes. Yes, and if, if Professor Umoff is doing the opening address, therefore I dare say he's very well respected. And Spensky says that, you know, he's got this, it's got this great thing to say. Unfortunately, though, what he has to say would probably put the careers of everybody else who's at the convention uh, to an end because it's basically saying all the work you've done up to this point really is an illusion and stands for nothing. So I dare say he's, the chances of him being well-received and applauded at the end were probably negligible because you could probably see people's faces going, hang on, what about that paper I'm writing, my PhD or that theory I've got, he's now saying is null and void. Well, what do we have to do? Get the hook out off the stage. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, I, I think a, a lot of, yeah, a lot of people would have known what he was going to say. It wouldn't have come as a surprise because usually at events like this, people are laying out um, the minutes of notes, certainly for the people who are running the, the convention. I mean, Mend Mendeleev, let's remember, we're talking about this research chemist who developed the periodic table. So this, this isn't just some fringe lunatic um, convention. This is going to be at the cutting edge of, of that kind of, of the science that they were going to be discussing. So, you know, they didn't want any surprises, really. And that, I think, is the crux of the matter here. They don't want surprises. When you, when you have to keep uh, academic tenure, you can't see your entire life's work going flushed down the pan by a new idea, which is not what science should be about. I mean, investigation, investigation should be an evolution of ideas, shouldn't we? You shouldn't be afraid that what you've have been working on has now been superseded but unfortunately that's how it is and it was even back in those days absolutely and i think the other thing is though interestingly this fellow uh this professor is towards the end of his life i mean he dies soon after so i think he's had yeah a, a get out of jail free card here to speak his mind and has <laughs> taken the opportunity that's all <laughs> No, but, yeah, I'm but saying, it's, a, it's, it's well, true. No, I mean, that's you know, a if really you, good thought. If that's you're 23 and starting off a career, as opposed to the professor asked at the end of your tenure, a life, you know, your life's work asked, you've got a different license. And um, so I think he's taken the opportunity, and I think full credit to him. A big step. Yeah. In, in a, a very tough. Mm, you know, totally he, agree. He's playing to a tough crowd here. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly so. Exactly so. It's full of 23-year-olds at the start of their career. <laughs> That's right. And I've put a few 40-year-olds in there that are halfway through, you know. Absolutely. And, they're the, and they'll be the worst ones, won't they'll they? Because be the worst they're, they're, found, they're founded on the old tradition and they really can't afford now Absolutely. to switch tracks. And, you know, it, it is no different today. I mean, you know, I find... Uh, in the medical world, 
you know, new thoughts come in. Uh, you know, for instance, we've got um, neuroplasticity coming in to the uh, medical world. You know, when I was starting off, the brain was fixed, nothing changed, and now we've got people, you know, talking about all the changes that occur throughout our life. A lot of resistance uh, from certain quarters. Some open up their well, minds. Well, I make a living out of that. The idea that we can, yeah. I mean, neuroplasticity is how I make a living. Yeah. The idea of, you know, change, changing the neural pathways uh, mm. within the brain through but suggestion. But if you see a lot of repetition. neurologists, you'll find they don't necessarily agree with that concept. Um, yeah, I know. I, I can only go by the results I get. And, and if, I had to, if I had to, like, um, staple it to a scientific idea, that's the one that I have to staple it to. You know, and, and I'm not... Uh, I'm not being negative towards neurologists. I'm just saying, you know, some will accept it and some won't when you're in the same boat. Same boat. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about here, isn't it? I mean, that brings us nice, nicely round in the nice, circle. Nice segue. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Nice segue. So I, I won't do a lot of Umov here because I will just cut to the chase as to what his actual point was that supports Suspensky. But this, this, this little paragraph made me chuckle, so I'm going to read it. You have to indulge me. So Espensky, this is where Espensky kind of throws Professor Umov under the bus before he even starts. And he's, he's not just blaming the fact that these people that were at the convention probably weren't open to the ideas that were there and weren't prepared to listen to it. He's even blaming Professor Umov for the way he's titled his, his uh, uh, speech. So this is where we don't know whether they were friend or foe. So here it is. But inertia and routine, of course, did their work. Professor Umoff's address was heard along with the other addresses, was printed in the proceedings of the convention, and there rested, without producing at all the impression of an exploded bomb, which it should have produced had the listeners been more in a position to appreciate its true meaning and significance, and, more important, had they the, had they the desire to do so. In this diminution of its significance... The reserves and limitations which Professor Umov himself made in his address assisted to a degree, as did the title, in failing to express its substance and general tendency, which was to show that science goes now in a new direction, and one which is not in reality, i.e. that the new direction goes against science. Well, I kind of think Professor Umov probably wouldn't have got a Guernsey had he said, I'm going to talk about the way science has uh, basically gone in a new direction from this point onwards, and, and all your work is yeah, you know, all your work is now out the window. I don't think he would have got, he wouldn't have been the opening speech. He no, he not. certainly would not. No, he would. They, they, they'd have actually they'd have actually sent men around with a, with you know white jackets and uh, had him put in a rubber room. Yep, I, I think he showed true stealth and and uh, yeah, full marks to him. But uh, Spensky kind of <laughs> gives him a bit of a well, you know, mate, if you're really going to get out there. And the Spensky himself is not doing that. The Spensky himself is saying, you know, here here I am, a mathematician. Everything that I'm about to say links to mathematics. Here we go. And before he he doesn't he doesn't produce. Well, he spent he he spent. Um, 126 pages of my printing of this book, which, you know, is 330. So over a third of it, before we start getting to anything else, has been uh, mathematical in nature. That's, I don't think, you know, they're ideas for discussion that I don't think any other mathematician 
would have worried about. They would have discussed with him, but I, I don't think, you know, he's, he stayed completely scientific till then. And repeat to the point of repeating himself quite often. So, yeah, I th- he does. I, it's strange here. It's like I, I want Professor Umoff to be a bit more forthcoming. I would like an ally on my side. I, I am Batman. I would like Robin. And, I, and he hasn't become my Robin. <laughs> and, and poor, poor Umov probably didn't even know he, he was up for the job. <laughs> and there's, there's the other thing. I mean, Umov, I don't think, wrote his um, keynote speech, his opening sp- uh, speech there for that uh, convention with the idea that he was being a uh, job interviewed by Uspensky. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm still going to give Uspensky some credit here. He is still here. Running the the gauntlet, still standing his principle and saying, this guy's right, we've got to have a look at this. Come on, everybody, let's bring it back on the table and I will tell you more about it as we go on. And the fact that he's only a third of the way through the book and still got two-thirds to go in the new field, I think is great. And I think, you know, he's good old Uspensky. People still have heard of him. I'd never heard of Professor Umoff other than in this book. (laughs) So basically, he's given Umov, Umov a bit of fame, hasn't he? Absolutely. He's, he's, he's been on. He, he must have been fantastic. I haven't researched him. I think it was very interesting times that Spensky lived in. I think that, you know, there was yeah. you know, Einstein coming yeah, through. The first there World was, War, everything. You know, yeah, and they were just trying to work out. There was just so much going on in the scientific world that was new and exciting. And, you know, the change from 1890... To 1990 was absolutely astronomical in our scientific yep. uh, you know, world and they're at the beginning of this and I think he could see the potential it didn't quite go exactly the way he thought but it you know it was exciting times absolutely yeah. I, I mean I'm totally it, it, it was it was a very interesting time so I think what did, what did Professor Umov say that Aspensky really liked well he starts out and he talks about the fact that he, Spensky cherry picks. Spensky feels that Umov is still wed to the fact that motion is something that belongs to the to the outside world and not, as Kant has uh, pointed out, and Spensky aligns with something that we ourselves interpret in our own consciousness. So he says, "I'm going to ignore that," and, he, and he's quite upfront about it. He does say that uh, the reason he doesn't care about whether uh, Umov believes that the atom or the electron are the foundation of matter is because for Spensky his point is that matter is uh, the foundation of matter is an illusion and I'll just read you that part Um, from my standpoint it is immaterial whether we make the foundation of matter the atom or the electron I believe that, that at the foundation of matter lies illusion or in other words a form of perception and the consistent development of those ideas of higher space, which Professor Umoff made the basis of his address, leads, in my opinion, to the negation of motion, just as the consistent development of the ideas of mathematical physics has led to the negation of matter as substance. So he's already looking at mathematics and physics and bringing just he's, he's tagging those in when he has his he's making his point. He's he's putting forward that although he's been building all this hypothesis up on mathematics, that he's now lumping mathematics into the same bucket 
as physics. And I think, in essence, what he's trying to do is say, and he does say it later, that science and mathematics are still looking at the, th at the three dimensions. And so it doesn't matter what they say, whether it's you know, matter is this or that or the other, it, it's an illusion because it's something that materialises based on your perceptions. What are your thoughts? Does that sum up what he's saying? Absolutely it does. You know, I, and it's interesting that he then goes on to, to mention things like electrons. But this idea of matter not having substance because of we're, we're finding subatomic particles, the science didn't go down that road. They, they quite clearly were still seeing electrons, neutron, uh, neutrons and um, the other components of uh, an atom as having substance. The way that they were investigating, you know, I think some people might, may have suspected, because it's a re fairly recent um, development in uh, quantum and also in cosmology, the idea that subatomic particles um, are, are actually actually consist of energy; they're not particles at all. Or sometimes it, um, they will they will give results to investigations that would appear. Uh, make them appear as though they're particles, but then subsequent investigation mathematically means that they they have they're actually um, operating as waves. It's it's an interesting thought there that Uspensky's cut straight to the he's gone a hundred years at, well almost a hundred years ahead of himself, and and decided that what this leads to is the idea that even electrons are not substantial. Yeah, he would have he would have been he would have been. Um, I mean, there might have been people that were having thoughts about that then, but I've never seen anybody else that came out and said it. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the time when the, the atom was first split as well, aren't we? You know, Rutherford was doing yeah, that work at Cambridge at the, this time. Yeah, and and I think he, he does further back up this point a little further in the chapter. The interesting thing is his next paragraph, because I think this is where where Aspensky is finally bridging the gap between mathematics into the occult. I think this is this is the paragraph you mentioned earlier. It Pete. is, and it's I exactly think the one. He's putting it in, and he, and as you say, it's there, and then he goes straight back to Professor Umov. So here it is. Having mentioned electrons, I may add that there is a method whereby modern scientific ideas and the data of the psychological method may be reconciled namely by the aid of the very ancient systems of the Kabbalah, alchemy and so forth, which established the foundation of the material world in four principles or elements, of which the first two, fire and water, correspond to the positive and negative electrons of modern physics. But in such case, the electrons must be regarded not simply as electromagnetic units, but as principles, i.e. as two opposite aspects or phases constituting the world. And then he goes on to Professor Umov's address, but we're going to stop there. That is a very interesting paragraph because I think Bespensky is putting himself, finally, he's revealing, I'm actually heading in this direction, as you say, Pete. I'm, and, and he's just sprinkled it in there, like, oh, nothing, nothing exceptional, off we go. This is almost like subliminal positioning in television advertising. He flashes that paragraph up and then goes back straight away into saying Professor Umov's address is interesting and remarkable. Exactly. Like, yeah. he, uh, honestly, because he doesn't relate back to it um, for quite some time. 
He's yeah. literally just put that in there to an audience which, so far, you you are you are reasonably uh, able to believe uh, the expected audience of this book to be mathematicians. But he's put that in there and then and then and then moved away from it very quickly. It's like you know, flash. But he's put it in very close proximity to Professor Umoff's name. Yeah, it's almost like if you weren't focusing very hard and just reading the book, you'd almost think Professor Umoff has said this. Like, yeah, well, what he's done is he's done some kind of parasitic linkage, hasn't he? he he's, he's attached his virus to Professor Umoff, and Umoff is now <laughs> expected to carry this around the world and spread the disease like it's some kind of pandemic. <laughs> I, think, I think well done, Aspensky. You, yeah, you I started... do. <laughs> that was quite cool. I think this is where the original fake news started. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> anyway, poor old, poor old uh, Umoff. I mean, he doesn't even even after death, he doesn't realise what's going on here. <laughs> he may well be looking down and going. Maybe, maybe he is. Tell them, tell them what I really said. Tell them the yeah. truth. Tell them all about my work in mathematics. It took me seventy years of my life. <laughs> Talk about that. <laughs> This was just one conference, one lousy conference. What do I get? <laughs> and you know what? I didn't even want to go. <laughs> no. I wanted to sit home yeah. and relax. So anyway, Professor Umov continues. And, and Dispensky talks about how Professor Umov describes the evolution of science from the atom um, and the electron, i.e. from a, a materialistic and mechanistic idea, into it's now coming into the electromagnetic theory. And I, I think Aspensky quite likes this idea of the electromagnetic theory, but he does join it with the principle of relativity. So he, he takes uh, what Professor Umov talks about as, you know, we're, we're moving on from this materialistic, mechanistic idea to the electromagnetic theory. And Aspensky throws in, but of course is also... Um, he's also talked about the principle of relativity. Now, I think this little bit here is Aspensky getting street cred. We've got scientific things being mentioned, new mm. theories being mentioned. We're still Professor Umoff's, it's coming out of Professor Umoff's speech. And now we've introduced the principle of relativity, which, you know, was a very popular well, it's interesting, uh, though, because he he also, without mentioning it, um, does give us an idea of this, the way that the new way of thinking, following relativity and this development into research into quantum mechanics, is at, is at great odds with the previous, what he describes as classical physics, by which he means Newtonian physics and, and the idea of gravity, which still haven't been reconciled, by the way, we I'm sure everybody knows that, that there is there is no unified theory. What works in in the world of quanta actually fails in the model of the universe that we live in and experience. This the, based on Newton, but even Newtonian gra gravitational that, that model is flawed. I mean, it, it's by no means perfect. Uh, but what we can't do is seem to unify that. And I, I, you know, there's a lot of work going on. In fact, I think the the greatest amount of work that goes on is to try to unify those two so that we can say, there, there we have a model of, of reality. And I, But the problem is, and I think Uspensky was well aware of it, 
that that was going to be a very difficult thing to reconcile. I, I, I think he was well aware of it. And I think he, you know, he doesn't, he, I mean, he doesn't mention quantum by name. I don't even think it had got that label at that, mm. in that date. But he, he does talk about the augment, augmentation of knowledge gives sufficient number of images for the construction of the world, but they destroy its architecture as that is known to us and create, as it were, a new order extending far in its free lines beyond the limits, not only of the old visible world, but even beyond the fundamental forms of our thinking. In other words, he's going to the things that we can't see. And most people, if you describe quantum mechanics to them, wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. And, and, and rightly so. It's not, it's not an easy thing to... The mathematics of it is not easy to delve into. And it is a new world, and it is astonishing. Um, but it's, it's then, he says, the ascent to them amid the ruins of classical physics. And that's an interesting phrase to me because it seems, he seems to think that it's actually just the new way of thinking destroys um, the old way of thinking. But it hasn't. We don't plan, you know, when we're putting uh, satellites into space or, or whatever the heck we do in space, we're certainly not using quantum mechanics to get those spaceships up there. All the calculations are based on Newtonian gravity the Newtonian model of gravity, all of them, bar none. We wouldn't get them up there and we wouldn't get them home. I think, he, I think the belief was that it was going to destroy the classical model. It, it was so astonishing that it looked as though it was going to destroy the classical model, yet the classical model still persists. We still have to use it. And I think this is what like, racks the brains now of these very, very clever mathematicians who are trying to unify the two theories. And I think the point that Ospensky's making here kind of really supports that because... Yeah, I was only making the point that he seems to think that um, the old model was destroyed. I mean, his phrase is quite clear. The ruins of classical physics. The classical physics hasn't been ruined. It wasn't ruined then. It isn't even ruined now. That's, that was the only point I was making. I think you're quite right. You know. Yeah, I think that part of this chapter is talking about that we, we or science sometimes somehow feels that it has to have one all-encompassing explanation of everything in one theory. That's what I think Ospensky is saying. He's saying that science has this theory and that theory and they're, they're progressing with, with different ways. They've gone materialistic, uh, mechanistic, electromagnetic, but none of them, and even now the, the principle of relativity, none of them are all encompassing. There are still gaps. There are still things that are unexplained and things that uh, experiments contradict one theory and another. And I think that's exactly what you were saying, Pete. That we were thinking, yeah, we've we've got this new um, electromagnetic theory. Throw out the old. But then you say we couldn't get a satellite up. So we do need all these things. We do need the different parts of science for managing life in this three-dimensional space. Science has got value there. It just doesn't explain everything all in one big theory. That's what I think Ospensky is saying. Uh, he says that, um, but the recognition of the electromagnetic world did not annihilate many unsolved problems and difficulties, and the necessity for a generalising system was felt. In our difficult ascent, we have reached the point, according to Professor Umov, which the road divides. One stretches horizontally to that plane which has been pictured, another goes to the high summit which is already visible and the grade is not steep. I'd love to know, hang on, hang on, I'd love to know what he means by the grade is not steep. 
The grade is not steep is something that Uspensky puts in his book here when he's talking about the divide between classical physics and this new way of of thinking, this new mathematics, this, what, what we now know as quantum uh, theory um, that had developed out of um, Einstein's relativity. And he says that following this divide, one, one road stretches horizontally to that plane which has been pictured. In other words, he's saying there will no longer be any progress in classical physics. It's a horizontal plane. We're not going up to the summit of new knowledge. But then he does say uh, another goes to the high summit, which is already visible and the grade is not steep. Well, I'm not certain that I know what he was thinking then. Did he anticipate that they would soon find all the answers to everything because of Einstein's uh, relativity? Uh, if he thought that, he's been proven wrong because the summit is still... The stomach gets ever higher. The more they find out, the more baffling it all becomes. And I'm Do not sure... Do you think sure. it's a typo? No, I don't. It, it, I, I, when I read that, I thought, hmm, what... What do you mean? I would have thought that that a new a new direction of science would be quite steep. You're starting from scratch. Uh, yeah, but they're not starting from scratch, are they? They're all they're all getting very excited and aroused by relativity, and they all think, "Oh, this is the answer to everything. All we need to do is fiddle around the margins, and we're going to have everything explained here. It's so wonderful. It's so pure. It's so lovely." Einstein himself was saying, "Hang on, lads." Even I can see problems with it, you know, calm down. But nobody ever did calm down. Even to this day, they haven't calmed down. Um, it's interesting, you know, that people don't listen. Once they've got their, eye, their eyes fixed on something, once they've had it fixed on something, this happened with relativity. Everybody gets, so, all of that community got so excited by it, it changed, it changed cosmology. I mean, cosmology, uh, how... How we describe the universe used to be about looking at looking at um, phenomena and describing how that phenomena takes place. Literally, immediately after relativity, cosmology became the preserve of the most fanciful and abstract mathematics that that is ridiculous and and has ended up positing um, stupid things that can't be replicated in a lab, can't be observed in the universe either. They're just the outcomes of improbable mathematical um, blackboard scribble. Um, I, I, I don't know why um, poor old Ospensky thought that the grade wasn't going to be steep. But then I think he, I think he was caught up in, in all of what was going on with regard to relativity. And they all thought it was the final solution to everything. And, it was, and it's turned out not to be. Well, he certainly does look at it as, as this is going to bridge the gap between electromagnetic theory and the principle of relativity. But then he goes on later in the chapter to, to, to just totally disregard all of that and talk about thought and consciousness, which yeah, we will I, get I, to. I, I agree, but I, I think he, I, I get the feeling that he thinks that relativity is going to lead science into, um, the development of fixed models for consciousness. In other words, we were going to find a mathematical solution and a model that describes consciousness. Um, more fool him. 
and he ought to have known better even then, but he didn't, and, and this is the book he wrote. I, I think it, I, I, I do think that though he just got caught up in this momentum of relativity where everybody thought there were going to be careers made out of this, and by God, they were right about that. Look, I think I, I think yeah, he he may well have got caught up because I don't yeah I agree with you the grade even from where he was standing it would be a leap of faith to say the grade is not steep because no one knew where it was going they didn't know what it was going to bring at that point they just could see that there was a new way of thinking that explained a lot of things that were beforehand unexplainable and it was the new uh, new horizon. So he goes on and he says, let us look about us at this point which we have reached. It is very dangerous. Not one theory only has suffered wreck there. It is the more dangerous that its subtlety is covered by the mask of simplicity. Its basis is the experimental attempts which gave a negative answer to the researchers of careful and skilled experimenters. And uh, Professor Umoff shows the contradiction which were the outcome of certain experiments and necessary to explain these contradictions served as an incentive to the discovery of the unifying principle um, of relativity. So I think there he's, he may even be saying that you know, the, the principle of relativity looks, looks simple, but it's, that's, the, that's the dangerous point. You, you think it's going to explain everything, but that's, it's, it's not as simple as that. Do you think that's what he's saying there? I don't. I honestly don't know because he's now saying that the unifying principle is the principle of relativity, which any fool know is exactly relativity was exactly the thing that is the divide. There, you know, the 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 fork in the road comes. The fork in the road is relativity. So far from being a unifying um, principle, it's a divisive principle. I'm. I. I I cannot understand how he would write about, you know, he writes one stretches horizontally to that plane which has been pictured, another goes to the high summit, i.e. there's been a split, and then he describes one of those um, splits as being the unifying principle. I, have, I, I think He's quoting Professor Umoff here though, isn't he? Or is he, is he out of that? No, he's, he's not, that's not a quote. He says Professor Umoff shows the contradictions which were the outcome of certain experiments. The necessity to explain these contradictions served as the incentive to the discovery of the unifying principle. This was the principle of relativity. Well, I've got news for him. Relativity um, branched us off in a very steep ascent to, to a summit that we've not really reached. Well, not when I say not really, that we haven't even come close to reaching is, is more more to the point and that's that's narrative that's not a quote that's narrative that's that's his narrative hmm. professor okay. umoff wouldn't mention his own name when he was <laughs> in the third person <laughs> when he was speaking that's true that's true so i don't know i, I don't know what's going on there because i i'm i mean i'm not a mathematician and and i i would have to investigate the history of this but I'm not sure that anybody at the time thought that this was a unifying principle. Um, I think a lot of the time, uh, early, early, early days about um, for, with relativity, that people thought, as, as Uspensky has written here, the idea of classical physics being like left in ruins by this new theory. That's not unifying anything, is it? 
And there's so many different branches of science and they all fill a pocket of something. They all serve as something. I mean, chemistry, physics, mathematics, all those, all those. He's only, he is only talking about physics though. When he's talking about unifying, he's only talking about that. Yeah, true. But even in physics, we've got all these different, different theories. I, I, I think, I think he's still, I think he's hanging his hat on Professor Umoff coming forward and saying, we have to start looking at these things in this direction, not in the yeah. classical direction. You guys already know this because of the principle of relativity. We, we've already, you've, you scientists have already started this process. Get on board. I think that's what he's saying. I'm sure he's right. You know, but he, I'm sure you're right, rather, but he wasn't right. I, I mean, because as it's turned out, um, we can't we can't do anything without classical physics. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, well, they they were using slide rules to calculate the re-entry um, angles and speeds and so on for spacecraft. They still do. Well, they don't use slide rules now, but they're using the same the same classical uh, models. They're still using calculus for those of people who are familiar with calculus. So they they still do use that. We haven't we haven't got away from it, and nothing is unified. And if anything. We're more and more divergent at the moment. Well, well, that be as it may. Let's move I on. Think, let's move on. I've just got to get rid of Professor Umov in this next bit. Um, I think Professor Umov's premise is that science has moved to explaining the world in terms of electromagnetic theory coupled with the principle of relativity. He then brings in his point and he says that time is just another spatial measurement like height, length and width and says that time is the fourth dimension. Okay, so here is his point. Time is involved in all spatial measurements. We cannot define a geometrical form of a solid moving in relation to us. We are always defining its kinematical form. So I think what he's referring to there is that if we're standing on this planet, we can't feel the movement of this planet around the sun. We can't define that that movement. We can only define the fact that something has changed. Is that your thoughts on that? No, because he's used the phrase, well, because he uses a phrase, we cannot define the geometrical form of a solid moving in relation to us. Well, I think that I can define the geometrical form of the sun. It looks like a, a circle. We're led to believe that it's a sphere. I haven't investigated it because I've not been there, but we are led to believe it's a sphere. It looks like a circle. So I do think, even though we're on this this planet and we're supposedly i mean do we know that we're moving around the sun how do we know do you know i'm told that we are but i have to accept that what people tell me is the truth in that sense but the fact of it is that all i know is that when i look up in the sky and there are not clouds there i see this yellow disc um what he's saying is that we can't define the geometrical form of a solid moving in relation to us so for example, something might look different in its shape. Geometrical form means shape, by the way. That's, that's what the phrase means. Um, depending on where you're looking at it from and, and where, which direction it's moving towards you, away from you, at an angle to you, or so on. Um, dead easy to understand that one. If a disc, a flying saucer, a disc, was coming towards you, on the same horizontal plane, all you would see is a line. The only way you'd know that it was moving is the line would seem to get bigger. Supposing now it started to tilt on its axis, 
that line would start to become an ellipse. If it tilted to 90 degrees, perhaps you would see that it was actually a perfect circle. So this one object relative to you in motion appears to have different shapes. You get this a lot in UFO reports. Yeah, well, I saw this object, it was a triangle, and then it suddenly became a like a cigar shape. Or th these things, that, that if, they've ha if these people have actually seen a UFO, if, it's, if whatever the hell they've seen, can be explained by this exact phrase. The idea that relative to us. Now, bear in mind that somebody at a different place, let's say the object is coming towards us, and so it appears like a line because it's in a perfect plane. Somebody below us and further away from us will see the disc going overhead. What looks, what looks to us as a line in the exact same moment in time relative to somebody else in a different location will appear to be a disc. That's what he means when he says... Uh, we cannot define the geometrical form of a solid moving in relation to us. We can't be certain about its shape. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I get that. Yeah. Mm, that's that's what he means there. And and you know, and, and that's clearly demonstrable. That's classical physics. I mean, we know that we because we can experience that. If you throw a frisbee at somebody, it <laughs> the shape changes as it's coming towards you and as it's curving in the air and so on. But it'll be different for somebody standing ten yards away. Okay, so we're, we're so 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 far we're with him. We we agree. Mm -hmm, with yeah, yeah. This is this is this okay. is all right. Yeah. So therefore, our spatial measurements are in reality proceeding not in a three-dimensional manifold, i.e., having three dimensions of height, length, and width like this hall, but in a four-dimensional manifold. The first three dimensions we can represent by the divisions on a tape measure, etc. The fourth dimension we will represent by the film of a cinematograph upon which each point corresponds to a new phase of the world's phenomena so he's mixing the two metaphors he's mixing the uh, geometrical measurements and that of the metaphor of the cinematograph where as time moves you see a new uh, image on any one given frame of the of the film in the cinematograph i love that that word any one in any one frame the object moving with relation to us could be for one observer a line another a disc and so on but it's all all contained on that same frame the, the frame represents a point in time now when he talks about the measurements that's another interesting point because if you were to take out a tape measure let's say you could freeze time and you were to take out a tape measure and, or, you know, you were doing this on the cinematographic frame, the line might appear to be, well, let's just say it's one centimeter long. The next frame, the object has moved closer. So you get your tape measure out again, and suddenly that object that you thought was one centimeter long is now 1.2 centimeters long. It's got closer. It appears to be bigger. In other words, we, when an object is in motion relative to us, we can't even be certain of its size expressed in terms of, you know, centimeters, meters, and so on. That's what he's saying there. Because on each frame of the cinematograph, the measurement will have changed relative to us. So he's then 
extending that and saying that the transition from one point to another of the film corresponds to our concept of the flow of time. This fourth mm. dimension we will therefore call time. So that's yeah. where he's bringing in. Mm. That's what the cinematograph means, yeah. It's another measurement. It's not. It's not... It's no different to length, breadth, or height in terms of it being a measurement. Well, it's measurement. It's me- Yeah, and its measurement will be frame number one, frame number two, frame number three, frame number four. Which, yeah, which proceed in time. Mm. So I think, I think what, he's, what he's got here is he's basically saying that Umov is supporting him with his thought that the fourth dimension is uh, therefore time. And, I, and I'm going to... I'm going to move forward a little bit. He look. He does go into all this other stuff about dualism of vacuum and non-vacuum. Do, do we need to cover that? No, but he does. He does say that he he does mention you know that um, each moment of time it still exists because because like a, the cinematograph is a great um, metaphor for that because obviously um, the frames still exist. You can go back and revisit them as well, but that's another story. We're not going to talk about time travel here, but uh, uh, maybe later on we will. Um, but that, right now, um, that that's a really good metaphor, you know. And and I think he has a great example when he says, if if the Earth had a beginning, if it was like a beginning just like that, from the perspective of the Earth. That beginning, that event where the Earth came into being, is, is is long gone. It's gone. But from the point of view of the cinematograph of time, it still exists. It's still there. Yeah, you just got to pull out that reel, and you could see yep. it. Yep, absolutely. We don't know how to pull out that reel, you know, from in the terms of physics and and mechanics at the moment. But there are other methods of doing it, which this book will take us into. So we're going to break there and the next podcast will continue. So thanks very much, Pete. I look forward to the next instalment. Fantastic. And I look forward to being here with you, Alice. It was fantastic today and it'll be fantastic going forward because we know what's coming. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll continue with part two of chapter 11 next week.